This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peace Street Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews 3, looking tonight at verses 7 through 19. Page 1002 in the church Bibles. Hebrews 3, beginning in verse 7. Hear the word of God. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says... Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the scriptures and pray as we study them this evening that we would profit by them as we are aided by your Holy Spirit. Father, we pray the late hour of the day would not hinder our alertness, ability to think about what your truth has to say to us tonight. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Yesterday, Barbara went out and dug up our garden in the backyard. It wasn't out of frustration so much as it just needed to be done. Uh, the garden had kind of run its course. It, some bugs had got into it sometime back, and it just wasn't doing very well. So it really was time. Well, she was telling me this afternoon that a thought occurred to her, and I haven't seen her to ask permission to tell this, but it's not overly personal. So, But the thought of kind of the, the watchmaker view, you know, that God created the world and then just lets it go, well, on a small scale, that's kind of how our garden went. Uh, we, did for, we did well for a while, but then it kind of got buggy, and we just sort of let it go. And when you just let it go, as you know, who garden or take care of your yard, when you just let it go and do its own thing, it doesn't go very well. It tends to have weeds. It tends to get overgrown. It just doesn't go very well. So it needed to be dug up. But the same thing that's true in gardening is true on a personal level as well. 
Apart from the grace of God, plowing and cultivating and, and taking care of and tending our hearts, uh, and apart from, in God's grace, our watching over our hearts, they tend to be like that garden or your flower bed or your yard or whatever it might be that's not taken care of. It tends to get overgrown. It tends to get weeds. It tends to become much less than it could be and should be. Well, that's a picture I want you to have in mind as we look at this passage here before us this evening, because this is a passage that has to do with hearts gone bad, with heart trouble of the worst kind. Uh, As you know, the writer to the Hebrews has been emphasizing the superiority of Christ in various ways, Old Testament prophets to angels, yes, even superior to Moses himself, and this is kind of a, and speaking of Moses sort of text, he goes on to talk about those whom Moses led. And we, on Sunday mornings, of course, are looking at that on the front end as Moses is getting ready to lead them out. But here we have a look at what happened later, and it was not uh, a pretty sight. Now, a big chunk of the text is a quotation from Psalm 95. In a sense, that's, that's his text. That's what he's working off of here. But as it's here for us, it's part of our text, uh, the first half of the passage, this quotation from Psalm 95. But what strikes me immediately, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this, but it's worth observing in verse 7 that he begins, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and then quotes Psalm 95. He does that again later. What a magnificent statement of the inspiration, the divine authority of Scripture. In some cases, we know the human author of various psalms or various books of the Bible. In other cases, we don't or we're not certain. But ultimately, that falls by the wayside because God is the author. He doesn't say as the psalmist says or as as David says. He says as the Holy Spirit says and then quotes from the Old Testament. Just a a great statement of the inspiration, the authority of Scripture as the Word of God. And he he gives us that quotation. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. And you may remember the situation. The psalm itself is pointing back to Exodus 17, where as the people became thirsty in the wilderness, didn't seem to have water in supply that they wanted, they began to grumble against Moses. They began to complain against Moses. They broke out into another rousing rendition of, why did you bring us out in the wilderness to die against Moses? And so this is the Lord's response uh, to their rebellion, to their grumbling, to, frankly, their unbelief. Now, the writer of the Hebrews says here, or if we wanted to say, the Holy Spirit says here, look basically at three things in particular at at Israel as he quotes from Psalm 95. Uh, Three things to notice. In the first place, think about the fact that these people who grumbled, who didn't believe, who rebelled, witnessed God's great work of redemption in bringing them out of Egypt. At a front row seat. They were part of it. They witnessed it. They saw the plagues. They saw the pillar of cloud and fire. They passed through the Red Sea and turned around to see the Egyptian army destroyed behind them. 
God had demonstrated to them his power. They had experienced that magnificent deliverance. It was these same people. Notice in second place that in spite of what they saw, they were hard-hearted in believing. Uh, Notice verse 16. Who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? That's who it was. They saw these things, and yet in spite of seeing them, They didn't believe. Verse 17, with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Yes, the same. The same who came out of Egypt were the very same who died in the wilderness because of their unbelief. 40 years. Because they wouldn't go into the promised land. Remember, sent in the 12 spies and 10 of the spies came back with a bad report, exaggerating the dangers and um, Joshua and Caleb came back and said, yeah, it's dangerous, but the Lord can do it. Uh, and yet the people uh, went with the majority report in that case and uh, said, no, we don't want to go in. Moses, again, why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? And they didn't enter. And God said, fine, you're not going in. They said, oh, maybe we made a mistake. And they tried to go in, but the, the inhabitants of the land drove them out. And they were sentenced to the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness until the adults of that generation died out. And the children they professed to be so much afraid for were the ones who went in under Joshua and conquered the land. But they saw these things, but they didn't believe. They became thirsty. They were rebellious. They tested God. Meribah means rebellion. Masah means testing. They saw God's amazing work, and yet they were cantankerous toward Moses, hard-hearted toward God, and unbelieving. Dear friends, if, if seeing is believing biblically, these people would have believed. Because they saw it. You know, sometimes people think, or you, or you think of somebody else, boy, if, if I could, or if they could just see some miraculous demonstration of God's power, some, some work, or some vision, boy, you know, they'd believe. I believe. It would help my faith out, would it? These people saw it all. About the people who saw Jesus, heard Jesus, crucified Jesus. You know, Luke 16 is absolutely right. Believing doesn't come by seeing. Believing comes by a work of God's grace through his word. Remember the parable Jesus told of the rich man and Lazarus. Rich man lived well, Lazarus was suffering, and then they both died. Lazarus went to be with the Lord. He was there in the arms of Abraham in heaven. He, he was in a great place. But the, the, the rich man was burning in the fires of hell. He's in agony. And he, he wants Lazarus simply to, to touch his tongue with a drop of water to, to, to still that burning. So I can't do it. There's this great chasm, this gulf, this distance fixed between us that can't be bridged. And he said, well, at least go to my father's house. I have five brothers. Go and and send someone to warn them. You remember Abraham's response. They have Moses. They have the prophets. They have the law and the prophets, in other words. Let them read that and believe. No, 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 no. But you see, if somebody goes back, comes back from the dead and goes to them, then they'll believe. Remember what he says. If they won't believe the law and the prophets, they won't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe even if somebody comes back from the dead. We need to understand that faith comes by hearing the word of God. 
comes by the light of the Spirit of God. These people saw some pretty magnificent signs and wonders, and they didn't believe. The third thing he wants us to notice with this Old Testament reference as he tells us to look at Old Testament Israel as a warning is in the third place, uh, he swore in his wrath they would not enter God's rest because of their rebellion and unbelief. This was God's action in response to their rebellion. They saw the works, they refused to believe, they didn't believe, and then God bars them from entering into the land because of their unbelief. God could give them that land, and he would give their children that land, but they themselves were going to die out wandering around in the wilderness because of their unbelief. Now, why is he dragging up all this Old Testament Testament history? What's he trying to get at? Well, he wants to show us what happens to people who grumble against God, who turn back from him, who don't believe him. He's saying, learn from the past. If you want to enter God's rest, Trust in Christ. Press on in Christ. To fall away in unbelief is to perish. He's essentially saying, look at the past and learn from it. Paul does something similar in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil as they did. Someone once said to their child, make your own mistakes, but don't make mine. Learn from the mistakes of others. Learn from the past. Learn from others and their calamities and their misfortunes and their mistakes. And the temptation is, sometimes, especially in hard times, to grumble against God, to turn on Him. Worst mistake you can make. Why turn from your only hope? Why turn from your greatest friend? Why go back to Egypt in unbelief? You see, as God's people, we need to look at them. We need to learn from them. Their refusal to follow the Lord, because it was scary, or because it seemed like he wasn't going to provide. They didn't trust, and they perished in their unbelief. So the first thing the writer of the Hebrews does here is just puts Old Testament Israel in front of us. says, look at this, learn from them. But now he directs our attention to ourselves in verses 12 through 19. The quotation is 7 through 11. 16 through 19, or it's kind of his commentary on it. We looked at that. Well, now we look at verses uh, 12 through 14. Now he gives us, uh, or 15 rather, he gives us four instructions here. First instruction he says to us is this. In light of what happened then, here's what we ought to do now. One, examine your heart carefully. Verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Take care. Watch out. Look at your hearts. Is it characterized by evil? Is it characterized by unbelief so that it would lead you to fall away from God? Say, wait a minute. I thought you can't lose your salvation. No, you can't. You can't. If the Father has chosen you, Christ has died for you. If the Spirit has drawn you, there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, not even yourself. The question, though, is has the Father chosen you? Did Christ die for you? you, Have you experienced the regenerating, life-giving work of the Holy Spirit that brings you to genuine faith in the Lord Jesus? Because, you see, people can make a profession but do they persevere in Christ to the end? You see, a profession can be made, it's just words. 
But the reality of persevering in Christ is what demonstrates a heart that is born again. And so what he says is to watch our hearts, to make sure, on the one hand, that we see the fruit of genuine faith in Christ. But even for a believer, it is possible for the heart to become hardened, for the heart to begin to grow up. A lack of cultivation leads the heart to become overgrown with weeds, evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away into sin, maybe grievous sin, not losing your salvation, and yet certainly not experiencing the joy of your salvation, but the displeasure and the discipline of God. Take care, brothers. Watch your hearts. Why does he have to say that? Well, the hymn writer put it very well. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That tendency, that sinful bent, that that apart from God's restraining grace, leads us to want to wander away, to do it the way we see it, to live by sight, not by faith, to do what we want to do. And so that's the first thing he says. You need to do a heart check. Take your heart's pulse. How has it been toward God? Are you walking with Christ or are you distant from Christ? Are you trusting him or are you ignoring him or are you grumbling against him? Are you obedient? Are you disobedient? Do you love him? Is his word precious to you? Is he precious to you? Do you love his church? Do you feel for those who are lost and apart from him? Examine your heart carefully. First instruction. Second instruction. Verse 13. Encourage one another daily. Look at verse 13. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Encourage one another daily. Uh, This is important because, yes, we want to examine our own hearts, but we also need each other. You need the objective reality of a cross-check of somebody who's able to come to you and say, you know, I'm I'm concerned about some things I see in your life. Are you doing okay? What's going on? And not to be offended when someone says that, to say, thank you. Thank you for caring enough. Thank you for risking enough to come and ask me how I'm doing. Because fact is, I've been going through some pretty tough stuff lately. It's got me rattled, whatever it might be. Um, exhort one another. You know, we should exhort ourselves, preach to ourselves, but we do need to preach to one another as long as it's called today. In other words, take the opportunity. Don't put it off. But be willing to encourage, to exhort, to challenge. And the word there that he translates, uh, that the ESV translates exhort, can have the idea of encouraging, but also of rebuking. And far from being offended when someone encourages us or rebukes us in this way, we should say, well, thank you. And thank you for your care for me and your interest in how I'm doing. Why? That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. As I've said before, sin in its very essence is deception. You see that going back to Genesis 3, the Garden of Eden, right? First sin in this world. When Adam and Eve eat the fruit, God told them not to eat. Simple enough in itself, but cosmic in its implications because they did the exact opposite of what God told them to do. And and Eve says it best. When the Lord confronts her, she says simply and profoundly, the serpent deceived me. And I ate. Sin involves deception. It involves believing a lie. From tiny sins to huge sins, it involves believing some lie that I'm going to be better off doing this, or I'm going to be happier doing this, or I'm going to find success, or life, or pleasure, or fulfillment, or whatever, doing this. 
to a degree I would not if I obeyed God. And that, my friends, is the lie of sin. It was the lie in the garden. It's the lie now. And every time we do sin, we're believing that. And one of the reasons we need outside intervention is precisely to break the spell of that deception. If you're deceived, how do you know? Right? You don't. You need someone from the outside who got it, who has a, a better perspective to come in and say, look, you know, you're, you're wandering off. There's a problem here. Do you not see that? Because sometimes we don't. We miss it. We're deceived when we want to believe the lie. That's why he says exhort one another. Because of the deceitfulness of sin that hardens the heart, you start believing lies long enough and your heart does become dull toward God. Or, uh, in the case of an unbeliever, that hardened heart is simply being revealed. But even for the believer, if we traffic in sin and lies and deception long enough, the heart does become hardened. And so we need to exhort one another daily uh, and not be deceived not be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Now, a third instruction he gives, first, examining your heart, encouraging one another, and then third place in verse 14, to persevere steadfastly. For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. You see, it's not how you start. It's how you finish. That's how you finish holding our original confidence that we had in Christ at the beginning firm to the end. You know, when you become a Christian, uh, it may have been a joyful experience. It may have been an overwhelming experience, something wonderful, something tremendous, a lot of zeal, a lot of energy, a lot of excitement. But over years of following Christ, we can accumulate some scars, can't we? From our own sin, the sins of others against us. Whatever it might be, you persevere. You see, that's, he says, our sharing in Christ is demonstrated not by our initial profession, which may be real enough, we hope, but by our crossing the finish line. We hold our original confidence firm to the end. And remember what you believed when you first became a believer. Never doubt in darkness what you saw in the light. Don't loosen your grasp on Christ. Don't begin to doubt his goodness and power now. You hold on to him even tighter till the end. So persevering. And then the fourth instruction he gives in verse 15, to listen to God obediently. As it is said, and again he quotes from the psalm, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. And he's taking that and he's applying it to his readers. He's applying that to us. If you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Listen, obey. Someone once asked John MacArthur, pastor out in California, this question. They said, how do you get yourself up for a sermon when you've been down during the week? Here's what he said. He said, I often work harder on my sermons when I'm not doing so well, when I feel bad. I know I have to give it everything I have and turn up the effort. It's similar to athletics. Many athletes exert themselves more when they feel below par. 
Well, when we are in that situation, when we're down, when things aren't going well, or frustrated, or we're upset, or we're discouraged, all of those things, that's when we need to be especially careful to watch our hearts, to listen for God's voice in Scripture and in preaching and teaching. That's when we need to be on guard against a grumbling and disobedient and unbelieving spirit. That's when we do need to ask and reach out and ask for a brother or sister in Christ to, to, to talk to and to pray with us and pray for us and encourage us. That's where we need to listen to God. If you hear his voice, don't reject it. Don't say, well, I already know all that. Don't say that doesn't apply to me. But you listen, you receive it, you obey him all the more diligently. And MacArthur was talking about, put forth more effort. Seek Christ more diligently. Be in his word more faithfully. Because the Lord will give you grace. He will see you through that test. He will honor your faithfulness. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Cameron Townsend, founder of Wycliffe Bible Translators, says this, Many people quench the spirit by being down in the mouth rather than rejoicing. By planning rather than praying by murmuring rather than giving thanks, and by worrying instead of trusting in him who is faithful. Cameron Townsend, along like many others, made a big mark in the world because he simply trusted God. His heart was not characterized by unbelief, but by belief. And you look at anybody who's uh, served Christ and and made a, a big splash in this world for Jesus, and they are people who lived by faith. That's not easy. The Israelites failed badly, failed epically. But people like Cameron Townsend, or Edson Taylor, George Mueller, and others, uh, you see God at work in their lives. That's what we want to be. That's who we want to be. That's who I want to be. I hope you do as well. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. It's at all times, certainly, but especially in hard times where we wonder, where is God leading us, as the Israelites did? Or we wonder, how is God going to provide for us, as the Israelites did? Or we wonder, why did God bring us here, as the Israelites did? It's in those hard times that we need to rejoice in Christ, to pray to Christ, to give thanks to Christ, to trust in Christ, who is faithful. And as you consider the faithfulness, the trustworthiness of Jesus, it becomes easier. And so as he and as we here reflect on the end of those who are hard-hearted toward God, who were un- in unbelief, they were unable to enter because of their unbelief, let's keep a close watch over the condition of our hearts. Close uh, with actually a look at the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 24. Proverbs 24. Verse 30, I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense, and behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. The literal garden, the sluggard, it was just not willing, too lazy to go out and do the work to keep it up. And it had overgrown and gone to seed. It had gone bad. It was crumbling. It was falling apart. Now, literal garden. But you see, it's also a picture of our hearts. 
Do we tend our hearts? Do we care for our hearts? Or do we let them go bad? Dear friends, you don't ever want heart trouble. But you especially do not want this heart trouble. Let's pray. And Father, we pray that by your grace we wouldn't have that heart trouble. We pray that our hearts would always be warm and alive to you, full of trust in you. Father, increase our faith. We live in a world where we function very much by sight. And yet, Lord, in your kingdom, we are called to live very much by faith. And that's not always easy. But, Father, we pray that we would learn from the failure of the Israelites simply to trust you, the God who had so magnificently brought them out of Egypt. Father, help us to trust you. Keep our hearts from going astray. Hold our hearts close to you. Bind our hearts, Lord. Let your grace, like a fetter, bind our hearts to you. And Father, give us grace to be diligent, to do what we need to be doing, to cultivate our hearts, to encourage one another, to search our own hearts, to weed out even this, the, the bare uh, saplings of, of sin beginning to take root and grow. And Father, we pray that you would see us safely home, that we would enter your rest. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.